0: following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, please turn to Malachi chapter 1. Some of you are like, I never heard that before. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So uh, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew and take a left, you will end up in the book of Malachi. Taking a break from the book of Acts for the season of Advent, as has been mentioned. Uh, Advent meaning arrival or coming. It's a a season that has been celebrated by the Christian church since about the fourth century. And uh, the purpose is to remember, to contemplate, to celebrate uh, Jesus' first arrival, that he came to uh, die for us and to rescue us from sin, death, and hell and to make us his own. And, and, and so, in so doing, we're remembering that Jesus came. We're also looking forward to the second advent, the second coming of Christ when he will make all things new. And so, it's a special season, it's a, a beautiful season. Um, and we are going to look at the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, the last words of God to his people before the New Testament breaks in. Now, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, Malachi is a hard book. Uh, This is not your sort of peppy, um, uplifting Christmas series, okay? If you're looking for that, this is not going to be it, although I hope that you will come back. These are hard words, but they're hard good words, and sometimes we need hard good words from the Lord. Amen? Okay, so two of you are on board. Um, let me give you just a little background on Malachi before we dive in. Uh, Malachi, as I mentioned, his name means uh, my messenger. And some people think that Malachi, the, the words he has to deliver are so hard uh, that he just he just named it my messenger, that that wasn't actually his name, but it was sort of anonymous, and he went, this is from a messenger of God, right? Don't ask, it. we're just the mailman here, right? We're delivering the mail. Um, his book is important because it's it's, one of, it's called a post-exilic book. And here's what that means. Uh, God's people had held on to the promise that God would bless all the nations of the earth through, his, through him, through his people. Uh, that promise came to Abraham and then to Isaac and, and, and down the line. But at times it didn't feel like that promise was going to come true. Um, God's people had been brought into exile, Jerusalem. Uh, their capital had been sieged, the wall destroyed, the temple razed, and the people taken into captivity to Babylon. They were there as, as uh, captives for 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, the Persian Empire took over. They, they actually conquered the Babylonians, and King Cyrus of the Persians said, you know what, I'm going to let the, some of the, the people of God go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So a small remnant had returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the wall. That's the book of Nehemiah. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, they rebuilt the wall. They rebuilt the temple, although the temple was smaller than it had been. It didn't have the grandeur or the stature that it had before. In fact, in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, when the old timers see the foundations of the temple being laid, and they know what the old temple was, the Bible says they wept because it just wasn't going to be the same as it was, okay? So that happens. They, they returned. They had come back to Jerusalem with great expectations and hope, hope of restoration, hope of renewal, hope of prosperity and blessing, and the power of God on display through them. And so now when we get to the book of Malachi, some time has passed. Worship has resumed, but things are hard. Uh, there is a an economic recession. Uh, There are taxes that have been levied that are extremely high. The people have a hard time sort of eking out a living. Uh, Culture is in decline. They are under the thumb still of other nations. They're seeing the wicked flourish. And God's power and God's presence just don't seem to be felt like they once had. And it's into that malaise, so to speak, that God speaks to his people through the prophet Malachi. And as I said, they're they're hard words, but they are good words. And so if you find yourself today weak, if you are weary, if you are discouraged, if you're half-hearted, if you are disappointed and cynical And after the last 20 months we've been through, who isn't? If you know what's true, but it just doesn't feel real anymore. And if you have asked the question of yourself, is this whole Christianity thing even worth it? Is he even worth it? Then the book of Malachi is for you. So with that, uh, I would like to read for us the whole first chapter. It's 14 verses. And then uh, we'll dive in here and we'll see what the Lord has. And again, they are hard words, words, but good words. And I, I pray that the Lord will give us ears to hear this morning. So join me in Malachi chapter one. There are paperback Bibles under the seats if you'd like to pull one of those out. It will be on the screen as well, but I think it's always good to have the words in front of you in your hand. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? We're already not off to a good start, right? (laughs) "'Is not Esau Jacob's brother,' declares the Lord. "'Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. "'I have laid waste to his hill country "'and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. "'If Edom says, we are shattered, "'but we will rebuild the ruins. "'The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, "'but I will tear down. "'And they will be called the wicked country "'and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever.'" Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any one of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. Merry Christmas. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you uh, thankful to be your people, thankful that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have the right to be called the children of God, and so we are. And uh, what a privilege and an honor that is. And yet we come also this morning with open hearts, willing to receive correction, willing to receive rebuke willing to receive challenge from you uh, through these very hard and very good words. Speak to us, Lord, Holy Spirit, I I plead with you to empower me as I preach this word to rightly divide it uh, and and both to challenge but also to encourage. May we, even in this very difficult text, see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus, and would you draw our hearts even closer to you than they are right now. We pray this in the beautiful name of Christ, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be something. Um, he starts out by saying this is an oracle, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. As I mentioned, Malachi may or may not be a proper name; it might be anonymous, and it just it's from my messenger or from a messenger of the Lord. But he calls it an oracle, and this word oracle can also be translated as burden. And so, essentially, saying I have a burden to share with you. This is from God to you, and. Um, What what happened is God gave prophets the ability to see the spiritual reality underneath the symptoms. So there are a lot of symptoms that are going to be addressed, but the spiritual reality underneath is what Malachi sees and what he's going to address, and that's a burden. So he's bringing this burden before the people. It's a heavy weight to bear. Besides this, when we look at verse 2, what are the first words? How does God address a weary, worn out, discouraged half-hearted and cynical people. What does he say to them? I have loved you. God says before we address anything else, I need you to know that I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. That's what the entirety of the Old Testament is really about the love of God for his people. God here is not detached. He's not aloof. He's not standing back half-hearted from them and kind of waiting for them to get their act together. He says, no, 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 I love you. And how do they respond? How? How have you loved us? Now, this is not a literal conversation, okay? This is God presupposing their argument and then addressing the argument. So when you hear what you have said, they're not literally, this is not a conversation really happening, but God is addressing them. So he knows that the hearts of his people, when he says, I love you, that their hearts are going, how? And he's going to say, here's how. And when he goes on and they respond again with objection, he's going to respond. There's actually six, what's called disputations uh, in the book of Malachi, where they're going back and forth and back and forth. And it's because God knows the heart and he's addressing The 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 things of their heart that they would verbalize if they could. I have loved you. How? How have you loved us? Now, the fact that there's even the rest of the book of Malachi is evidence that God loves them. (laughs) Okay? He did not have to respond to them. He does not owe them anything. We're talking about the God who, Psalm 115, says sits enthroned to the heavens and does what pleases him. He does not owe them a response, but he honors it and he embraces their question. They're saying, essentially, we don't believe you, God. Whatever this is, it doesn't feel like love. Judah is but a shadow of what it once was. Right? Only a small remnant has returned. The temple is tiny. Worship is, eh. And we are all struggling to eke out a living in this environment. You call that love? Maybe some of you are there right now. This is not what we expected. This is not how we thought it was going to go. You call this love, you say you love us? How? How is that love? Some of you right now might be thinking to yourself, if you love me, God, why do I continue to struggle with nearly crippling anxiety and depression? If you love me, God, why am I lonely all the time? If you love me, why do I suffer from chronic pain that just will not go away? If you love me, why am I poor? If if you love me, why does it feel like my kids hate me? If you love me, why is my marriage on the rocks? And I can't even stand this, the, the sound of my spouse's voice. Like, what, if you love me, show me, because this doesn't feel like love. Maybe some of you are there right now. And God, he's embracing your question. He's embracing your question. He's like, all right, all right, I hear you. Now let me remind you of some things. He takes him here all the way back to God's original promise to Abraham that came through his family line. Did I give you all the first point? I don't think I did. I got so caught up. This is so fun. Um, first point, if you're a note taker, discounting the love of God. Can you see that the people are discounting the love of God for them? Okay? How? How have you loved us? All right. Slow your roll. We'll get there. Um, God embraces the question. He takes him back to this promise that, that comes through Jacob. Now, if you're unfamiliar, God called a man named Abram. Uh, he was just a pagan man living a pagan life. And uh, God called him and he said, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. And I'm going to make a covenant promise with you that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your family line. By the way, he was 99 years old when that happened. Okay. He does give him a son. His name is Isaac. Okay. So at hundred years old, he has a son named Isaac. He then tells, God tells Abraham, put your son Isaac on the altar and sacrifice him for me. And Abram's like, Okay, here we go. I trust in the Lord. I trust in his promises. I'm going to do it. Now, God stops him in the middle. He says, now I know you trust me. You love me. And the the promise goes from Abraham to Isaac. And then Isaac's wife has twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the first out of the womb. So he's technically the oldest. And according to Hebrew tradition, he would have had all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. Like all the inheritance went to him, all the blessing went to him, everything went to him, Jacob would have had nothing. But God says the older is going to serve the younger. Jacob is my chosen one. Esau is not. Okay. Now this is hard for us to get our arms around when we see words like, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. You're like, what, what? And it's really more of in a comparative sense. When Jesus in the New Testament says, "Uh, if you're going to follow me, you need to hate your mother and father. He does not literally mean, I want you to hate your mother and father, but he means that you're going to love me to such a degree that in comparison to the way you love your family, it's going to look like hate. Jacob, I've chosen. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. Now, Esau settles in a place called Edom. The Edomites are a crazy wicked people who never follow God, never pursue God. In fact, they are not primarily, but they are largely responsible for the Babylonians conquering uh, God's people in uh, in the Babylonian captivity. And so uh, there are a wicked people. And here's what God says. Where's Edom now? See so what happened was the Edomites were conquered by other nations and they lost their identity forever. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. They say they're going to rebuild, but they never will. They've lost their identity forever. And Jacob, where are you right now? Oh, you're back in Jerusalem, the place I promised you. His whole point in this is that the people of God under the banner of Jacob, you know, um, Jacob has sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? One of them has a technical or dream code. It's a whole thing. Um, Jacob did nothing to merit being chosen by God. And yet God says, by my sovereign mercy, I have chosen you I have set you apart, I have provided for you, I have rescued you, I have restored you, right? My presence has dwelt with you, I have kept my promises to you over and over and over again, I have blessed you, I have loved you. You might be saying to yourself, that's all good for the people of God in the Old Testament, what about me? And here's what I'd say to you. It'll get better, I promise. If you belong to Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, no matter what else is currently going on in your life, and I know some of you have major pain, major trial, major heartache, major stuff going on in your lives, but if you belong to Jesus, no matter what else is going on in your life, you have been chosen before the foundations of the world. You have the affection and the mercy of God that has been set upon you by no merit of your own. You have been adopted into the family of God and have the right to be called a son or daughter of the Most High God. You have been blessed beyond measure. You have been redeemed from the domain of darkness. You have been lavished with the grace of God. You have been forgiven of every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and even future. And you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. And that's all from one chapter in one book in the whole Bible. That's Ephesians 1. You want to know what the rest of the Bible says? (laughs) Read it for yourself. (laughs) That's what's true of us. So no matter what else you are going through, and I don't mean to trivialize other things you're going through, it pales in comparison to the fact that you are chosen and blessed and redeemed and forgiven and all these things that the Bible says that you are in Christ. And not only that, Not only that, but according to uh, Romans chapter 8. I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing you can go through, are going through, will go through, will ever separate you from God's love. I have loved you, says the Lord. But life is hard. And when life is hard, we forget that God loves us. We discount the love of God towards us. And when we discount the love of God towards us, we stop taking God seriously. And that's the charge that God now levels against his people. So he starts, you know, this is a hard conversation. If you've ever had a hard conversation with a family member, a child, a parent, uh, a spouse, you start with, hey, you know I love you, right? (laughs) Okay, now let me say something hard to you. And that's what's going to happen next, all right? You guys with me? All right. So here's the accusation. Here's the charge. The people of God are dishonoring the worship of God. That's point two. So we have discounting the love of God. We have dishonoring the worship of God. We see this starting in verse six. Look at what God says here. A son honors his father. That's just a given. It's the way world the world works. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Where's my respect, in other words? Says the Lord of hosts to you. You despise my name. But then they retort, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised or taken lightly. Right? So the word despised here can mean taken lightly. When you offer blind animals lame, sick animals. He says, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? And then you entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift in your hand, will he show any favor to any of you? And look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He goes, I'd rather you close the church than to keep going through motions in a meaningless fashion. Okay, you are dishonoring the worship of God. Now he addresses here the priests, which we're going to get to more in detail next week. But I want you to see a couple things here. He says in this passage we just looked at, um, you despise my name, and you'll see this over and over again, five times, in Malachi chapter one. He talks, He says my name, my name, my name, meaning his reputation, his character you are devaluing, you are taking lightly lightly who I am, what my character is, what my reputation is. You are devaluing me. And the people of God, they're like, how? We don't take you lightly. And he goes, yeah, you do. How so? Through your shoddy, leftover, backburner worship. You don't seem to care what I want, is what God is saying. So you have to understand that the sacrificial system was instituted by God and God called his people to offer to him as a symbol of his honor and his reputation and his name, his perfect character, that they were to offer the first and the best and sometimes the only of their grain, of their produce, of their animals, unblemished, uh, spotless sacrifices given to God in honor of him who has perfect spotless character. But rather than giving the first or the best or the only, God's people at this point were giving their last, their least, their leftovers. Blind animals, lame, sick, diseased, decrepit, old, stuff that they couldn't use and couldn't sell. They were like, all right, we have no use for this. How about we give it to God? God says, you you think so little of me that you offer me what no one else wants, right? Instead of the God of the universe, you're treating me like goodwill. You ever do that? You got stuff you don't want, it's not quite broken enough, so you give it to goodwill instead? Just me? You are far better people than I am? You're basically giving them, you're like, hey, would you throw this away for me? (laughs) That's what you're doing? Still some good, fine. That was funny, wasn't it? All right. He says, you're you're treating me like that. You're just giving me this stuff no one else would use or want that's of no value. He says, is that not evil? That's a strong word, isn't it? He's not saying it's just disappointing. He says it's wrong. And I love how he goes, try that with your governor. You know who the governor would have been at this time, most likely? Nehemiah. Have you read Nehemiah chapter 13? In Nehemiah 13, when he comes back, you know, he establishes the, the, they build the wall, temple gets restored. Nehemiah goes back to the Persian empire to serve King Cyrus, Cyrus. And when he comes back, he finds that the people of God are doing exactly the stuff that Malachi is accusing them of. And Nehemiah says, when I found out, I beat some of them up and pulled their hair out. Okay. He, one guy has brought in like false gods into the temple and he's throwing stuff out of the temple like a like the scene in a bad breakup movie, you know, like we're just throwing it out of the apartment onto the street. And he beats people up and he pulls their hair out because he cares so much about who God is and his nature and his character and his name. And so he's like, why do you think I would accept this if Nehemiah wouldn't even accept it? I would rather you shut down the temple than keep going through the motions for nothing in vain. Now, some of us upon hearing this, we're thinking to ourselves, who does does God think He is? And He tells us who He is He's Father, He's King, He's he's Judge, He's Master, He is the Creator and Sustainer of all things. He's the one who has chosen us and provided for us and protected us and rescued us and blessed us and loved us. Is He not worthy of honor? And should he not get to decide what actually honors him? Now, um, pre-pandemic, the state of affairs in the Western church, particularly the American church, was already quite sad. Uh, Average attendance in church gatherings nationwide. I'm going to give you some statistics here. And I would like to say that I'd like to think that we are above average as, as a church but I'm pretty sure every pastor would like to think that his church is above average. So I don't know a guy who's like, my church is below average. Okay, maybe there's some out there. <clears throat> average a church, church attendance pre-COVID, 1.8 times a month. I don't know how you get to 1.8. I don't know if you came early, like came late, left early, something less than two times a month pre, pre-pandemic. Scripture reading, prayer, giving. Serving were all at historic lows pre-pandemic. And then COVID happened. And it was actually a gift in a way at the beginning because it broke up the fallow ground and sort of shook us out of our thoughtless routines. And some of us got really serious with God at at that point. We had all kinds of anxiety and worry and uncertainty about what was happening um, and as things got better and things lifted, some of us stayed out, stayed, you know, and, and listen, at first, there is very good reason. We're being cautious. We're being safe. We're going to watch the live stream. Totally get it. You know, any of you who are still watching, like, that's uh, that's a good thing, right? We, we provide it. But it moves from caution to comfort, and then comfort to laziness, if we're honest, you know? Um, Disengagement from community, even those who have returned, like, and, and I'm just, I'm speaking broadly, I'm not accusing any particular people in this, uh, in this service or this congregation, but um, we're back, but kind of, we're back, but cautious still, and cautious meaning like not ready to serve, not ready to get involved, not ready to be in community, just sort of like, I'll attend when it's convenient, um, So I'm I'm really curious to know what post-pandemic attendance numbers for churches are. I know that most churches have lost about 30% of their congregants. And for many of us, the last 20 months, all the upheaval and the discouragement and the pain and the distraction that we have wrestled with over these 20 months has left a lot of us very cold and half-hearted towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. And many have just sort of slowly drifted further and further away from the Lord. Spotty attendance, you know, again, uh, well, I won't watch it live. I'll watch it the next day. I'll listen to the podcast, or maybe I won't. Um, We've we sort of slowly settled into a mediocrity, and no one likes mediocrity. <laughs> you don't eat at a mediocre restaurant and then, like, brag about it to people. You're not like, that steak was not great. You should go, right? We don't do that. No one likes mediocrity no one enjoys it and so many of us are stuck in this mediocre place or we have we are filled with angst we are filled with anxiety because we watch too much news we we are we are isolated we're broken in our relationships and we're not pursuing the lord he is no longer our first priority We have forgotten why worship matters. And so, therefore, it doesn't really matter how we worship. But I'm telling you, it matters. (laughs) And none of these things I mentioned, Bible reading, church attendance, serving, giving, none of that is a measure of your maturity in Christ. Hear me plainly. There are plenty of non-Christians and immature Christians who do all those things faithfully, okay? However... If we are maturing in Christ, if we are growing in Christ, we ought to want to pursue those things. What matters most of all, what matters most of all is that we see him as worthy of our worship. In the book of Hosea, which is another really hard book to read, Old Testament prophet. Uh, The people have rebelled many, many times against God. The Assyrian Empire, which is sort of precursor to the Babylonians, they're coming. You can sort of see them on the horizon, coming to conquer. And the priests and the religious leaders are like, hey, we got to get our act together, okay? So let's start reoffering sacrifices at the temple. Let's start reading the Bible. Let's start doing these kind of things in the hopes that God will avert his anger towards them because they are doing the right things again. And you know what God says in the book of Hosea, chapter 6? He says, I don't want your dumb offerings. That's my paraphrase. He says, I don't delight in your sacrifices. I want your heart. What's more important than you attending church, what's more important than you reading the Bible, what's more important than you serving or giving or those kind of things is that you consider God worthy of worship and that you give him your heart because you have embraced the love of God for you. You understand the gospel, that Jesus lived the life you couldn't die, the death you deserve, rose from the grave. You are part of his family and you are so in awe of what he has done for you that you will give him everything gladly. And when we do that, when he has our heart, then we'll worship. We will worship because he is worthy of our praise. We will pray because he is worthy of our dependence upon him. We will read and study and meditate on his word because he is worthy. His words are worthy of us listening to and heeding. We will obey him because he is worthy of our surrender And we will serve him because he is worthy of honor. So they are guilty of dishonoring the worship of God. But but that's not all. (laughs) He also says this. You guys with me? He also says that they are disregarding the mission of God. That's our third and final point. They are disregarding the mission of God. Look with me at the second part of verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Told you it wasn't cheery. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit. That is, its food may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is. You bring what's been taken by violence or lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Will I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared, revered, respected among the nations." God is saying to his people, listen, I, I don't delight in what you are bringing me, so why are you bringing it to me? They say, what weariness this is. They're, they're saying, it's such a nuisance. It's too much. I've got to be to church at 11, 1115. 11, it's too much. God wants me to read his Bible and like pray and stuff. Ugh. It's the, When they say snort, they snort at it. It's, it's a colloquialism. I can't say that word, but it's one of those. And it's, it's, like, um, it's like Napoleon Dynamite. It's like, oh, right? It's that, what a drag, right? Following Jesus should never feel like a drag, friends. It's a delight. It's a gift. But they're like, oh, I worship God, you know? And, and, and he's like, I, no, shut it down. I don't, don't do that. I don't delight in it. Imagine, I know this might be a stretch for some of you, but imagine for a minute people doing church badly just because. With no desire for God, no passion for the things of God, no expectancy that God's going to show up and actually do anything in their midst. Does that not feel like a waste of a Sunday morning? Why would anyone do that? And yet people do it all the time. And listen, my greatest fear for our church, and, and in 14 years, by God's grace, this hasn't happened. I don't think we're close, but it's, it's a thing that, that sort of sits on my mind. In Revelation chapter 3, God is, uh, Jesus is speaking to several churches, right? And in chapter 3, he says this, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You heard this, right, this verse? And, and most of the time, uh, people equate that to evangelism, like the Lord is at the door of your heart knocking, and if you'll let him in, he'll save you. But that's not the context of the verse. The context of the verse is Jesus is knocking on the door of a church who didn't even realize that he left the building. My greatest fear for us as a church is that in our comfort, in our ease, in, in our subtle sort of shift into uh, the malaise of just, you know, going through the motions that we continue to do church and don't realize that Jesus left us a long time ago. May that day never come. God refuses to be ornamental. And to the degree that we treat him as irrelevant, he actually makes himself irrelevant in our lives. Christ is either everything to us or he's really nothing to us. And it's our devotion, the text tells us, it's our devotion or lack thereof that actually says to the world who we think God really is. Three times he says, my name will be feared or my name will be great among the nations. That's the mission of God. That's the call of God's people is to make the name of the Lord. This is Psalm 67. To make the Lord known, to make the Lord praised, to make the Lord enjoyed, to make the Lord feared or revered. That's the mission, right? Let the nations be glad. That's how Psalm 67 reads. But our half-hearted devotion to Jesus screams that he is not king, that he is not worth knowing, that he's not worth following. But he says, I'm a great king, and I am worthy of honor. He has to tell us himself, I am a great king. I am worthy of honor. And do you notice, look here at the last verse, verse 14. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. There's something important about the, word, the, the phrase the Lord of hosts here. Um, seven times in this passage we, we have read the Lord of hosts. You might have skipped past it, but seven times in chapter 1. God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts is mentioned in the book of Malachi more than any other book of the Old Testament. So there's something important about this phrase. What is it? Lord of hosts can also be translated as Lord of armies. Okay? And you have to remember that at this time, as as Judah has been restored, okay, they're not what they once were, it's a small remnant. And. they, they were taken into captivity because other armies conquered them. And now Judah is this little tiny posted stamp size province in a massive Persian empire. And they do not have an army of their own. So they realize how weak, how vulnerable, how susceptible to attack they are. They realize how limited their resources and their abilities actually are. And here is God saying to them over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord of armies. In other words, I am your defender. I am your protector. And I always stand ready with legions of heavenly armies to protect and defend you. And so he stands before us, not demanding honor like an angry general, but demonstrating love like a father. You say, what do I mean? Do you realize that Advent is about remembering that the warrior king, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies came to this earth as a defenseless little child? And when he was born, the heavenly host, remember Luke 2? The heavenly host, the heavenly army of angels breaks through the clouds and they shout out, right? Praise and honor to God. They shout out, We bring you good news of great joy for all people, for all the nations. That today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior is born, Christ. Jesus came into the earth inaugurating a new kingdom where blessing would flow as far as the curse is found. And he came as the only one who ever truly honored God. And then he took the blame for every time that all of us have in so many ways dishonored God. And as he went to the cross, he suffered and he was mocked. And, you know, they would say, if you're the Christ, why don't you come down from there? And if you're the Savior, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And he had already said in Matthew 25 that he could call a legion of angels at any time. And so as he's nailed to the cross... As he's suffocating and bleeding and dying, he's there and he could have in that moment called the legion of heavenly armies to come and wipe everybody out and rescue him and he stayed. You know why? Because in the cross, as he had his arms spread wide open, he was saying, I have loved you. So Jesus brings God's rest to our weariness. He brings God's strength to our weakness. He brings God's compassion into our affliction. He brings God's pardon to our sin. And so my, my hope for you in this season of Advent is that you will learn to rest in the love of God for you. And that by resting in the love of God for you, you will learn to worship him, to honor him with your worship. And you know what the reward is when we do that? More of him. We get more of him. We experience the nearness of the presence of God. And his power is on display in us and through us as we embrace the mission of God. So I I have one very simple, I have two simple questions um, that I just want you to contemplate. They're not going to be on the screen, but as we prepare for communion, these are the questions I want to just pose to you. Very simply, is Jesus worthy of honor? And if your answer is yes, are you honoring him with the way that you live? Is Jesus worthy of honor? And he is. So if Jesus is worthy of honor, Am I honoring him with my life? Am I living in a worthy manner that honors the Lord? And so whatever the Lord reveals to you, if there are things you need to repent of, turn away from, abandon, pursue, right? Then you, you do what he calls you to do. But is he worthy? Is he worthy of honor and glory and blessing and power? Is he worthy of my devotion, of my affection? Is he worthy of my life? And if so, am I living in a way that honors him? All right, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to invite you to communion. Now, as a reminder, we have two stations per table, okay? So you'll come down these uh, aisles here. Uh, You can go to each station. It's identical. Uh, all of the wafers now are gluten-free except for the little rip and sip cups. So if you're still COVID conscious and don't want to touch a cracker, there's um, the little pre-packaged ones in the middle. But on those two stations, it's a gluten-free wafer, and then there's wine or juice. So you come as a believer in Jesus, as one who has surrendered to Christ, you come remembering this is how much Jesus loved you. This is how much the Father loved you, that he would send his only son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us his blood was spilled, that his body was broken. And we come in remembrance, in thanksgiving, in repentance of sin, and in devotion to him. And we take that bread, and we dip into the juice or the wine, and we go back to our tables, and we pray, and we thank God, and we partake of those elements. Because Jesus said, as often as you gather, right, remember me through this. Um, As you make your way back to your seats, there are black boxes. If you have Connect cards, if you have uh, financial offerings, you want to put in those boxes. If you're a guest with us, we'd just love to have your Connect card. That's it. Um, And then the band's going to return. We're going to sing two more songs, uh, and then I'll have a couple announcements and a a blessing benediction for you as we prepare to leave. But let me pray, and then I'll open the tables for you. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people. Um, I know this is probably for many not the um, uplifting Christmas series we wanted or expected, and yet these words, I believe, are what we need right now. Um, I know I need them. And so I pray that in this moment... Uh, in, in this series, that you would minister to us, that these hardwoods words would be good words, and that you would affect change in our souls as we as we embrace your love for us, regardless of our circumstances. As we turn our affections and our attention to you, as we honor you with our lives, pray that you would be glorified and that you would fill us with a sustaining joy in the season of Advent as we look forward to Christmas Day when we celebrate and remember that you came. You came to do what we couldn't. Perfect life, sacrificial death, glorious resurrection. That we are forgiven and free and whole in Christ. So Lord, um, as we respond to you now through prayer and repentance and communion and giving and singing, would you be honored? And would you minister to us by your spirit even now? Would you make your presence thick among us as we sing these songs? We love you. We thank you for this time together in your word. And I pray your blessing over these people. And in our time of response, we pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.